after saying something mean, or after a burst of anger, or after doing something you know to be wrong or hurtful, have you ever said something like, I don't know why I said that? That's not like me at all. Or have you ever blamed someone else for your reactions and behaviors and said something like, I only said what I said because you said what you said. Or I only did what I did because you did what you did. Or how about, I only say the things I say because you make me so angry. Or I... I did, I only did what I did because you make me, you made me so angry and I didn't know what else to do. Or kids, don't want to leave you out. I want you to think for a minute, have, how many of you have ever hit your brother or sister and then said, and you probably know what I'm going to say, they hit me first. Or how many of you have ever called your brother or sister a name and, and said, but they called me a name first. And if you don't want to admit it, I could ask your parents. I'm sure they'd tell me the truth. Or how many of you have, have ever said, or how many of you have ever taken a, a toy from your brother and sister and then said, but they took the toy for, for me first. Paul David Tripp, in his book, War of Words, says this, it's very tempting to blame others or to blame the situations around us, but word problems reveal heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasions for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. And Philip Ryken adds this when he says, what should we say, I love this, what should we say when we are caught saying or doing something evil? What we ought to say is, you know, that really is what I'm like. I'm just embarrassed because usually I'm better at hiding it. Or we should say, it's not you it's me. I know I said you made me angry, but really it's because I'm angry that I treated you the way I did. In our passage tonight, Jesus wraps up this sermon that we've been looking at the last four weeks. And what he's doing tonight is is he's continuing, we, we did what we did a couple weeks ago, and we placed a break within this sermon that's not really there. And so what he's doing is he's continuing to both encourage and admonish uh, those who are listening and those who are reading like we are tonight, uh, and he's encouraging us to make or to continue to make an accurate assessment or self-evaluation of ourselves and what he's going to do is focus on the spiritual condition of our hearts. He's going to take a look inside because, as the text says, out of the abundance of the heart, or out of the abundance of our hearts, 
we both speak and act. And it's vitally important for us to pay attention to ourselves before we can ever hope to help someone else. Um, Our text, we're going to break this down into three points. The outline is in the back of your bulletin as it usually is. We're going to look at the relevance of our fruit. We'll, We'll look at the abundance of our heart. And finally, we'll look at the significance of our foundation. Those three things tonight. And before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your Word. We ask that you would awaken our attention and you would refresh us and encourage us and challenge us and convict us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear His gospel tonight. I am, as always, weak and needy and unfit for this task to which you have called me, and so I, I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. I pray that I would communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and with grace for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, Daryl Bach says that through this sermon that we have been, again, looking at over the last four weeks, um, since about the first of March, uh, Jesus delivers what he calls a believer's ethic. And he says that because the sermon is set in what he calls a gospel response context. And in other words, what he means is that the sermon is a catechism or it's instruction on love and it's grounded in the security of the knowledge of God's blessing. And of course, I agree and we should all agree if we think back as we're going to do for just a second over the last few weeks and the sermon at the very beginning, you'll remember back in chapter 6 that Jesus declared that his disciples were in fact kingdom citizens and that citizenship wasn't based upon anything but their faith in him. It was by faith alone that they were in him. And because of their faith, he then described them as those who could and would experience a very deep abiding joy. And that deep abiding joy was due to the fact that he was their greatest treasure, and it was He uh, that they valued most. And then He exhorted them to beware that because they were open and willing to identify with Him, that they would experience uh, poverty, they would be poor, they would be hungry, they would suffer, they would be ostracized, they would be lied about, they'd be hated, The reputations would be ruined. But he also said that in the midst of all of that, that they could jump up and down in a triumphant joy because their ultimate reward was not here and now, but it was to come. Because while the kingdom had come, the kingdom was still to come. The kingdom was now, but it was not yet. It was already, but not yet. And so they knew, he was, he was letting them know that their best life was not now. Their best life 
was yet to come. And building on that foundation, he says, okay, because of, uh, because of who you are, because of who they were, and because of uh, who they valued most, and because of, uh, or in light of what, what was ahead for them, because of that identification with him, there was a way that he desired them to live. There was a way that he wanted them to live in the midst of those circumstances. And he said, as kingdom citizens, you who are treasuring me and following me and listening to me and learning from me, you're to be distinct. You're to be set apart. And we've been talking about this over these four weeks. There, there was a, the world's way and there was the kingdom way. Two distinct paths. And he went on to say that that kingdom way was a way of love. And that way of love was very difficult because as, as we've said uh, repeatedly, it wasn't a warm sentiment that we have for one another, and it wasn't some romantic love that husbands have for wives, and it wasn't even a, a mutual brotherly love that we would have for our friends. It was a, an, an unconditional love that we were to have for our enemies. And we've talked about the fact that that, that means that it, he wasn't just calling us to the easy thing. Right? And to love each other. And he wasn't calling us to do the little more difficult thing, which was to love our neighbor. He was calling us to do the most difficult of things, which was to love those who hated us. As a matter of fact, we are to treat our enemies the way we wish they would treat us, even though they're doing the exact opposite of what we want them to do. Thus, the difficult way. They were to be indiscriminate and lavish in their loving of others. And fortunately, he said that this love, it was difficult, but it had been modeled. Right? It was a, a love that um, he, he wasn't asking them to do something that the father hadn't already done, and he they weren't doing something that he himself wouldn't do fully and completely in the days ahead when he would go to the cross. And being on the receiving end of that love, having been loved to that extent, uh, having been loved abundantly and having that love abundantly poured out into their hearts by the Spirit, they would be able to love as they had been loved. They would be able to do what they had been called to do. And by His grace and the power of the Spirit, they would work out of the, that abundance of their hearts and live that kingdom way and live distinctly from the world around them. Now again, we paused. So we need to quickly rem remind ourselves two weeks ago that he continued, and we saw that he was sharing with them the fact of reciprocity. Right? They wanted to know, you know, what does this look like? And he says, well, here's what this looks like. He said, if you choose to judge and condemn and withhold forgiveness and be close-fisted, right, others are going to treat you the same. But the opposite is also true. If, if you don't condemn and you don't judge and you forgive and you give generously, it will be done to you. At least generally speaking, right, as a general rule, it doesn't always happen that way. But more specifically, and, and the deeper point that he was making is, you know, 
you do this, as you live, as you love and, and don't judge and don't condemn and, and are forgiving, that's how the Lord is going to treat you. But as you condemn and as you judge and as you lack forgiveness and as you remain tight-fisted, that is how the Lord will treat you. And of course, we clarified, right? We clarified and we said that he's not setting up this uh, salvation based upon some weight and measure system as if they were going to earn their salvation. Right? He was simply saying that there, again, there's a difference between how the world lives and there's a difference between how those who are kingdom citizens live. Those who live the world's way live in pride and in arrogance and in hostility and condemnation and harshness and hopelessness, much like we see going on around us today, because it's a way that's devoid of the gospel. But the kingdom way is one in which there is mercy and grace and forgiveness and gentleness and hope because those who are kingdom citizens understand the depth of their sin. They understand the depravity of their sin. They understand the justice that they deserved. And they also understand and appreciate the graciousness and the forgiveness that they've received in Christ. And how someone lives not only provides evidence of the path that they're walking, but it also provides evidence of, of where their path is leading and what they are um, not necessarily, some are looking forward to and some not so much. And he also then explained the folly of hypocrisy. He said to focus on the sins of others while ignoring our own or to amplify the sins of others while downplaying our own or to ramp up and, uh, the, the, the smaller sins of others and ignoring uh, the major sins of our own or feeling as though somehow that we have the ability to deal with the sins of others. He said all of that is backwards. He said, if that's you, you're, you're really, you're just pretending. You're deflecting. You know, you're, you're putting everything on everybody else and failing to look at yourself. You know, everything is someone else's responsibility rather than your own. But fortunately, again, he, he addressed the issue, but he provides a solution. He says, before any of you attempt to help your brother or sister, there are a few things you need to do first. First, you need to look at yourself you need to establish a proper perspective of yourself and others. You need to uh, examine your own heart first. You need to identify your own sin first. You need to um, identify and acknowledge how you need to repent first. You need to remember that you, how much you have been forgiven first. And then once that's been established, then approach your brother and sister humbly and gently. Maybe point out their sin but do so grieving, understanding that their sin is grieving the Lord and is an offense to the Lord. And, and it's also hurting them deeply. They're hurting themselves in the process. And then he said, don't, you know, it's, don't simply identify it. Walk along with them. Walk along that path that you have walked with your sin. Walk along with them as they walk their own. And that brings us to tonight. 
right on the heels of that, right? No break. He continues to drive home this point of self-examination. We're going to come to that self-evaluation again, and he explains the relevance of their fruit. In verse 43, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, this is another text that is wrongly used typically by those who desire to counter those who wrongly use verse 37. The conversation usually goes like this. The person whose attitudes or language or behavior or decisions have been called into question in some way will snarkingly say, Jesus says not to judge. To that the person who is questioning the attitudes or the language or behavior decisions returns snark for snark and says, I'm not judging. I'm just inspecting fruit. You're right, the Lord doesn't call us to judge, but He calls us to be fruit inspectors. And the problem is that's not Jesus' point. It's not what He's saying here. He is not, he's not giving us justification to examine any, anyone and everyone. As a matter of fact, when Matthew uses this, he uses it in the context of false teachers. And he's telling them, you know, you, you know, when it comes to false teachers, you can tell them by their fruits and differentiate between what they say and what they do. But it in no way gives instruction to examine anyone and everyone. The word for at the beginning of verse 43 lets us know that it's an illustration of the importance of self-examination that Jesus has just expressed in verses 41 and 42. And his point is clear. Just as figs produce fig, tree, uh, fig trees produce figs and grapevines produce grapes and thorn bushes produce thorns and bramble bushes produce brambles and good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. Those who are not believers or not kingdom citizens live a lifestyle of hatred and hoarding and pride and arrogance and hostility and condemnation and harshness and hopelessness. While those who are believers Live a lifestyle of love, generosity, mercy, grace, forgiveness, gentleness, and hope. And they exhibit these characteristics, qualities, toward their enemies. He's also saying that there are a lot of people who may profess to be kingdom citizens and are even outwardly religious, and they follow the forms They may even um, have their quiet time every day and read their Bible daily and attend weekly worship and serve at the local shelter, but their attitudes, the attitudes they have, the words that they say, how they behave, the decisions they make, on a consistent basis, particularly when squeezed, say otherwise. Kids, you remember the toothpaste? We're back to that again. 
the consistent nature of their lives does not match the confession that they make. Figs don't produce thorns. Fig trees don't. And grapevines don't produce rambles. Or vice versa. So the reality is when in most cases it may be obvious who is a believer and who isn't, sometimes it's hard to tell if someone is a kingdom citizen or not simply based upon a profession of belief. The difference between those who profess faith and those who possess faith is determined by the fruit we produce because our fruit is a natural byproduct of who we are. Which brings us to the second point in verse 45, the abundance of our heart. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So the bottom line is, people often contradict what they profess by how they act. They betray themselves because everyone's attitudes and words and actions naturally recur or occur as a result of who they are. People consistently produce external fruit based on what's internal. He says those who produce good, those who are good produce good fruit, those who are evil produce bad fruit, and that's because fruit comes from the heart, which is the soil from which fruit springs. Another way to say it would be an unregenerate heart produces unregenerate attitudes, words, and actions, and regenerate hearts produce regenerate attitudes, words, and actions. This is why behavior modification um, aimed at external behavior only and attempted by sheer willpower alone rarely, if ever, succeeds. And it doesn't succeed because the outward behavior will inevitably arise again from the soil of the unchanged heart. Now, I chose regenerate and unregenerate for reason. Um, and that's mainly because in, in the culture in which we live today, many people believe that all of our problems in society could be solved by ourselves apart from God because ultimately we all have good hearts. Now some they believe may be better than others, but ultimately everyone deep down has a good heart. But, but the Bible says something differently. For example, through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the Bible says that those who have deceit, deceitful and sick and unregenerate hearts, just to name a few, love darkness rather than light, are unable to submit or to please God, remain in unbelief, are slaves to sin, continue to bear fruit of evil and death, and all because no good dwells in them. 
And this is why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, right, that he needed to be born again. He needed to be born again. And that was true not only for Nicodemus, it's true for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Everyone needs a new heart. We all need a new heart due to the fall and sin and our, our, the wicked condition of our hearts. We need to experience a supernatural recreation in which the old, hard, unresponsive heart is replaced with a new and soft and responsive heart that treasures Jesus above all things and that is continually being transformed into the kind of hearts that love to do the will of God and that only That only happens by the Spirit. Listen to how or what God said through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And by God's grace, those with the new and soft and responsive hearts are able to, just to name a few things, keep His commandments and walk as Christ walked, to not hate others, but to love them, even their enemies, to listen submissively to the Word of God, to practice righteousness, to not make a practice of sinning. Now, we know, we all know that that's not to say that those with new hearts are perfect and never deal with sin or never exhibit bad fruit. That's why I chose to use the words able to rather than always. Because while those with new hearts have been set free, They've been set free from the bondage of sin and are now free and able to walk in that kingdom way. It will always be an ongoing struggle. It'll always be an ongoing struggle because sin remains, right? The residue of sin remains. And and our flesh continually wars against us and wars against the Spirit and it rears its ugly head and and Satan constantly is putting obstacles in our way along that path. So even with good hearts, the struggle won't be over until we're with Jesus in glory where the presence of sin is no more. And, And the point of this is Sin is a heart issue. Sin is a heart issue. And this is why Jesus says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. We need to evaluate and determine what kind of fruit we're exhibiting. Because the fruit we're exhibiting is evidence of our heart. It's it's evidence of the condition of our heart. And so we need to ask the hard question, what is the abundance or overflow of our heart producing? And as we do that, as we just think about that for a minute, someone 
maybe here tonight that has never repented of your sin. You have never turned in faith to Christ to receive the forgiveness he offers through his life, death, and resurrection. And, and you are here tonight and you need a new heart. The good news is that if you, if you call upon the Lord, call upon his name, look to him in faith, he will save you. He will give you a new life. He will give new life to all who ask. Any and all who ask. There is no sin too small that is, isn't in need of the forgiveness of Christ. And there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven. So in your self-evaluation, do you find yourself in need of a new heart? Call upon the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. For those who are kingdom citizens, right? Those who have new hearts, you've been born again, but you, in your evaluation, may need to repent of a particular besetting sin. There may be something uh, that is growing, and you need to ask the Lord to remove that wild root. And you need to begin to mortify that sin by faith. Trusting in the power of the Spirit because its, it's ongoing presence is contrary to who you are as a believer. It's contrary to who you are as a citizen. And the good news is when we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. Again, no sin is too great or beyond the forgiveness and hope that is in Christ Jesus. And just for clarification, right, the fruit that we're talking about includes, in the words of chapter 16 of our confession, that which God has commanded in His holy word, and not such as without the warrant of Scripture, or devised by men out of blind zeal, or any pretense of good intention. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and living faith. And of course, those, uh, what's included in that is, are, are those things that we've been looking at over the last several weeks, right? Love and mercy and grace and generosity and forgiveness, even towards our enemies. But we could add to that list... Right? We can look at Galatians 5, and where we find the fruit of the Spirit, love, and joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Listen to these words of Philip Ryken. Bearing good fruit means loving others more than I love myself, having joy in the midst of sorrow giving praise to God in the midst of grief, being at peace about the things that tempt me to worry, exhibiting faith rather than fear, contentment in times of adversity, patience in times of waiting, showing goodness and kindness to others in little things to make life better for others, consistent godliness in public as well as in private, a soft reply to harsh criticism, 
Self-control and refusal to go off on reckless binges and resisting the mounting pressure of temptation. Brothers and sisters, in our self-examination, whenever we see this type of fruit, because by the way, this self-examination, we're not just sitting around looking for all the negative and sin and we're examining our fruit. What are, what are the, what are the, what, what good fruit are you producing? What do you see the Spirit of God doing within you? What are the changes that, that you see He's making within you? And I put it that way because whenever we see the fruit of the Spirit, whenever we see this fruit of kingdom citizenship, we are to thank and praise and give glory to God because it's from Him. It's a result of His work in us. It's a work that He starts. It's a work that He continues. It's, and it's a work that's done in the power of His Spirit. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you and you and me. And that work always produces fruit. It's the result of a new heart that He has given us by the Spirit. Because in the end, all, when all is said and done, it is God alone who's good. And as we know from Scripture, we are a part of, of that vine in Christ. And that brings us to our final point. Look at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it has been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke... Immediately it fell, and the ruin of, what, of that house was great. Jesus says, if you're going to call me Lord, if you're going to call me teacher and master, you, you can't ignore the things that, that I'm saying to you. You can't just draw near and listen. You need to draw near, listen, and take the next, next step and do what I say. A follower and a disciple of mine must be, as we read earlier, a doer of the word, not just a hearer. And he says, here's the good news. If you do that, the foundation upon which your life is built, there's nothing stronger. Right? There's nothing stronger because it will be strong and immovable. If you will take to heart what I am saying to you, which, by the way, is the very Word of God. If you will take that and do what I say, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what life brings your way, despite the storms, in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations, the storm may rage and your foundation will always be sure. It will not waver. Digging a footing especially in Bella Vista, but digging a footing, right, and a basement on top of that takes hard work and effort. 
But in the long run, it provides safety and security no matter what comes your way. And, and he says, listen, not only that, but you'll be secure when the final flood of judgment comes. When that final flood of judgment comes, you will stand because you'll be standing on me. You will survive judgment because I am your rock. You will find safety building upon me. But this is, this is a warning, and we know it's a warning because of how he finishes. He doesn't, he doesn't end on the, on the good note, right? We want him to, and I want to, and I'm going to, but he doesn't here, all right? He says this passage... He says, what I'm saying, this is ultimately a warning. Because if you draw near to me and, and you listen to me, but you don't do what I do, things are going to be vastly different. If you draw near to me and fail to do what I do, the storms of life are going to hit. Circumstances are going to be out of your control. They're going to be difficult. Trials and temptations are going to come. And when they do, your life is going to implode. This is the language here implode fast and furiously and you're going to be left in a pile of rubble. And worst of all, when the day comes and you stand before the Father and the flood of judgment comes, you will not stand in the midst of it because you will be standing on a foundation of yourself and your own work. And it's going to erode immediately, and you're not going to survive. This is a call to obedience. As I mentioned when we began, the call is made within the context of the gospel. So the declarative is made before the imperative. And it's a call for all of those who are kingdom citizens. It's, it's a call for those who are kingdom citizens, whose citizenship is not dependent upon anything but Christ, but their faith in Christ. But our citizenship and the king we follow and serve and are loyal to um, it affects how we live. It affects how we live, and he calls us to a kingdom ethic. So, as is always the case, and as we say here rather frequently, we strive to live a life worthy of our call as kingdom citizens, all the while resting in what Christ has done for us. He is our surety. His perfect life of perpetual good fruit has been credited to us. And He has paid our debt for the presence of bad fruit and for the lack of good fruit. We are resting in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and in the hope of His return. He is our King. We are citizens of His kingdom that is already and not yet, and He has 
passed through the waters of judgment for us. So He is not only our rock, He is our ark. And our hope is upon Him, our hope is in Him, our safety is found upon Him, our safety is found in Him, both now and in that day. And brothers and sisters, may we be found faithful. And may our ongoing self-examination be fruitful for both ourselves and those to whom God allows us to minister. Let's go to Him in prayer.